Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm joined by Gregory Marcus in this first episode of a two-part series. Greg is an endowed professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco in the good old US of A. After studying for his undergraduate degree in philosophy at the University of California, San Diego, my old stomping ground, Greg went on to receive his medical degree from the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences in Washington, D.C., where I also practiced for many years. And then he completed his internship and residency at Stanford University in California. He undertook fellowships in cardiology and cardiac electrophysiology and a Master's of Advanced Studies in Clinical Research, all at UCSF. In his current roles at the University of California, Greg is the attending electrophysiologist on the wards and serves as the primary attending on electrophysiology admissions. In the clinic, he sees patients referred for electrophysiologic evaluation and supervises the devices like pacemakers and defibrillators in clinic. Concurrently, Greg has held many other positions, including serving as Associate Director of Cardiology Research and Associate Editor at the Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA, and sitting on steering and executive committees and being a co-creator of the Health E-Heart Study, clever name by the way, which has been running since 2013. Greg's a distinguished gentleman with many awards bestowed upon him. Most recently, he was elected to both the Association of University Cardiologists and the American Society of Clinical Investigation in 2022. I always like to include something sort of different about the, the people I'm privileged to interview. And Greg told me that when he was growing up, he was a fairly serious drummer, mainly jazz and really any sort of funk or rock. He grew up in Berkeley, California, or Berkeley, I should say, which produced a lot of great musicians. In fact, the majority of people he played with back then became professional musicians. Medicine gradually took over, and although he still plays some blues, piano, and drums at home, he told me that when he runs into people that he grew up with, many are disappointed to learn that he did not become a professional drummer, but then they think it's funny when they learn that Greg is, in fact, a rhythm doctor. So, welcome to the podcast, Professor Gregory Marcus. It's great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. I look forward to the discussion. So, uh, Greg, first of all, give me some favorite musicians or songs. I'm in awe of anyone who can do more than one thing, and I'm in awe of musicians. So, my tastes are quite eclectic, and I tend to favor individual songs rather than artists. Uh, it's kind of all over the place and, and often changing. To give you a, a kind of a smattering of, of examples, I, I have to mention a, a old, very good friend of mine who now goes by Lyrics Born, who's a, a rapper, and the song Calling Out. Baby, I Love You by Aretha Franklin would be another favorite. Other examples would be Paul Revere by the Beastie Boys, Watermelon Man by Herbie Hancock. But then uh, a lot from the UK, Hey, Hey, What Can I Do from Led Zeppelin. There's a lot from the Kinks. Duran Duran, it varies for me, frankly, day to day. Fantastic. Well, I I, I also have a an eclectic taste, and um, just last night I uh, I went to listen to some uh, some jazz. So yeah, I'm. If you ever find yourself over here, I'd love to show you some of the uh, the haunts in in London. 
So I, I also love origin stories. What, what inspired you to go into medicine and specifically into the field of cardiology and electrophysiology? Yeah, so as you mentioned, I was a philosophy major uh, in undergrad and was concerned with the big questions. Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? And realized that, well, I, I can't figure that stuff out. It's interesting to think about it, but I don't know that I can have a meaningful impact on the world. But clearly, pain and suffering are things that we definitely want to avoid. And how to best and most concretely address those things, it seemed to me, would be to become a physician. Then in medical school and more and more in internal medicine residency, I was drawn to cardiology and subsequently electrophysiology because those fields tended to be, in my experience, a little bit more intellectual with a focus on puzzle sol solving and deduction rather than, for example, just memorizing a bunch of lists. Plus, heart disease is, of course, important. Plus, unlike a lot of things still in medicine, there are many real solutions we can provide these patients. So electrophysiology in many ways is the amplification of all of those things. On the one hand, it's very intellectual. We will have debates about puzzle solving and understanding the mechanism of an arrhythmia. Part of our work when doing a study is to actually induce maneuvers where we infer various mechanisms and we get to actually cure some patients with, for example, catheter ablation procedures. So it's a nice mix of both intellectual stimulation plus much more sort of concrete surgical approaches to actually help meaningfully help patients. And, and your field, the growth in your field, certainly in my professional lifetime, has been utterly phenomenal. I, I was privileged to hear Earl Backer, who was the, the, the founder of Medtronic, give a talk once at a, at a big conference. What a fascinating and amusing man and, you know, game changer. You, you guys have completely changed the way that, that heart disease is treated. And, and, well, let's dig into it, right? So a lot of our listeners are healthcare professionals, but... Some are not, and perhaps also for those specializing in other fields. Can you give us a rundown of electrophysiology and where it is these days? Because, you know, when I first went to med school, it was just reading ECGs. So give us a, a 101, a, a university 101 course on electro, electrophysiology. Sure. So we are a subspecialty of cardiology focusing on abnormal heart rhythms, whether they be too fast or too slow. So for people with deadly arrhythmias, we put in defibrillators. A major advance that occurred while I was a fellow was identifying people who are at risk of sudden death and therefore the introduction of what we call primary prevention defibrillators. So putting them in people in the hope that we will save their life before they manifest uh, with a potentially lethal rhythm. We treat slow rhythms by putting in pacemakers. And then, of course, many, many fast rhythms with either medications or catheter ablations. As you allude to, the, the advances in the field have been, frankly, remarkable. When I was in medical school, the idea that you could treat atrial fibrillation, this very chaotic, disorganized, complicated rhythm with a catheter ablation procedure would have sounded outlandish. And now that's, frankly, the norm 
And although it's not a cure 100% of the time, we can certainly help alleviate atrial fibrillation via this now very common procedure the majority of the time. We also see people who are passing out or who have syncope and help to evaluate them. Family members of people who have died suddenly or may be experiencing electrical problems with their heart, again, to evaluate, risk stratify, and, and potentially treat them. Yeah, in the, um, the, there have been a number of high-profile cases in the sport that I love to watch, um, what Americans call soccer and we call football, <laughs> uh, of, of, you know, these hyper-fit young men. Um, I'm not sure if there's been any, any women yet this has happened to, but just collapsing in cardiac arrest. And there's one guy, Christian Erickson, who had an, you know, he was resuscitated on field, taken to hospital, a, a device was implanted, and he went back to playing professional football at the highest levels. And it's, it, you know, it's testimony to what you guys can, can do nowadays. Quite astonishing. So I'm a fan of coffee and afternoon tea, of course, as an Englishman. And I saw one of your pu- publications entitled Coffee's Effects on Cardiac Arrhythmia as well, Physical Activity, Sleep and Serum Glucose, Insights from the Coffee and Real-Time Atrial and Ventricular Ectopy Trial, or RAVE, I guess it would be. Bring us up to speed on the effects of a good cup of joe. Yes. So the acronym is actually CRAVE, uh, given the coffee in, in front. I just noticed that. I didn't. Yeah, that's. I love these acronyms for trials. That's awfully clever. I, I have to attribute that to a mentee, and he was a fellow at the time who came up with that, David Rosenthal, now practices uh, electrophysiology in Seattle. So I, I'll go through this study, which we really enjoyed conducting, and frankly, I think our participants enjoyed it as well. And it is amazing how important coffee is to the great majority of, of people. And the results, frankly, are quite complicated, which often does not lend itself well to a single headline, but that is the reality of this commonly consumed substance. And it may very well be that as a caffeinated beverage, a lot of these findings probably apply to tea as well. So we enrolled 100 volunteers, fitted them with a Fitbit to continuously record their step counts in sleep a continuously recording glucose monitor that is usually used by by diabetics, and a continuously recording EKG, a a patch that they could wear that actually where you can shower, you can exercise, do all your normal activities. Then they were randomized via text day to day to either go ahead tomorrow, go ahead and drink all the coffee you want. And in the morning, they got a reminder, remember, today you can drink all the coffee you want versus avoid all caffeinated products. And they were essentially received about seven days of one versus the other in a random order. A common question then is, well, how do you know they really followed their randomization assignment? And so we assess that in four ways. One, there's a button they could press on the ECG monitor in real time whenever they had a cup of coffee. And we previously showed that that sort of activity was actually very reliable. We did this in people consuming alcohol compared to a continuously recording alcohol sensor. Number two, we asked them every morning, well, did you actually have any coffee yesterday? They didn't really have an incentive to lie. On the other hand, you could argue, well, but they're still doing the study. They want to come across as, as 
you know, following directions? Was there some other objective way to know? So we also used a feature that we now have in this digital research platform that we use that we call geofencing, where we can geofence for a visit to a publicly known location. And in this case, we geofence for visits to coffee shops. Finally, we told all of our participants, we will pay for your coffee, whether you were supposed to drink it or not, as long as you show us a date stamped receipt. And no matter how we looked at it, the adherence to their randomization assignment was not perfect, but the great majority of the time, the great majority of people did indeed follow their randomization assignment. So what did we find? Well, on the one hand, on days randomized to coffee, there was no difference in these common early beats arising from the upper chamber called premature atrial contractions, or PACs, which are important. We all have these PACs. There's a spectrum of the frequency with which we have them. And it turns out that people with more PACs are at higher risk of developing an important arrhythmia, atrial fibrillation. In contrast, we actually did find more PVCs, premature ventricular contractions, on days when people were randomly assigned to coffee. We all similarly have PVCs. Again, you put one of these ECG monitors on someone walking down the street for a couple of weeks, you are going to see PVCs and PACs, but the frequency does matter. So there's now also good evidence that people with more PVCs may be at higher risk of developing heart failure. Now, some of the most statistically significant findings had to do with differences in physical activity and sleep. So when, when on days when people were randomly assigned to consume coffee, uh, we also, by the way, validated all these things by those other metrics I described. They, on average, took about a thousand more steps on the coffee days compared to the coffee avoidance days. And then finally, in terms of sleep, they slept about a half hour less on the days randomly assigned to coffee. Now, the other thing we did, and I should mention, we did not see any changes in glucose on days randomly assigned to coffee, which we, we included glucose measurements because there's evidence from large epidemiologic studies that coffee drinkers seem to experience a lower risk of developing diabetes. Now, the other thing we did was we collected DNA via spit kit from all of our participants, and we checked their genetics for their propensity to metabolize caffeine. So we compared those who were slow caffeine metabolizers versus fast. And the biggest interaction we found had to do with sleep. So these slow caffeine metabolizers actually experienced, as expected, the worst sleep. They tended to sleep about an hour less on days randomly assigned to coffee. Interestingly, the fast metabolizers really had no detectable difference in sleep. So, it, you know, when someone tells you, oh, I can have a, you know, cappuccino right before bed and I go right to sleep, it's likely that they're actually telling the truth. So there's, there's clearly a lot of important heterogeneity regarding these complex effect, uh, effects of coffee. Does the, the time of how long it takes to metabolize change with age? Because I used to... I could have a double espresso after dinner and I was slept like a baby. Now I just don't, I don't drink coffee after two in the afternoon. Is it a factor of age or is it that? It does. Yes. So 
the caffeine metabolism variants, of course, are fixed. And so we have a given propensity, but yes, indeed, they are also dynamic. So it is not uncommon that with age, that sort of metabolism will slow down. It also can be ramped up or turned down depending on how much coffee you regularly consume. So even a person who is genetically prone to metabolize caffeine more slowly, if they you know, ramp up how much they drink over time, they will speed up that metabolism. But yes, over time, it's not uncommon that as we all get older, uh, we may metabolize caffeine as well as other things quite a bit more slowly. Fascinating. So moving on to another interesting substance, you're launching a new study to look at cannabis and arrhythmia. You must have had fun naming this, the Mary Jane Cannabis and Heart Rhythm Trial. I know it's just getting going, but maybe you could talk to a bit about about this trial. Cannabis is legal, I think you said in 23 United States, and, you know, lots of places around the world. And I sense that use is increasing with a backdrop of assurances as to how safe and wonderful it is and all sorts of claims being made for CBD and tetrahydrocannabinol. So, yeah, talk to us a little bit about Mary Jane. Yeah, so I think there's this, there seems to be this common assumption among many that, well, cannabis is natural, therefore it's good forgetting that tobacco is natural, cocaine is pretty natural, arsenic is natural. Uh, So natural, unfortunately, does not necessarily translate into healthy. And yes, it has been legalized. It's legal in California, meaning recreational cannabis, not just medicinal cannabis. And so, you know, we as scientists don't want to make any assumptions and we want to study this uh, rigorously. We did look at people seeking care in California, almost 23 million individuals, and found that those with any sort of healthcare code for cannabis use did experience a higher risk of developing atrial fibrillation. Now, that was in a fairly select population. Those were people where some healthcare provider had decided they they should code them for using cannabis. We have another study that actually is in submission using data from the UK, uh, UK Biobank, where tens of thousands of individuals described using cannabis recreationally at some point, and we could not find a difference uh, when it came to the risk of developing atrial fibrillation. So we thought we would leverage this study design, what's called a case crossover study that we had developed in Crave which we realize is a very efficient way to look at a relatively small number of people where they are their own controls and look at continuous outcomes such as premature atrial contraction and premature ventricular contraction counts and apply it to other common exposures. So Mary Jane is essentially like our CRAVE trial in previously looking at coffee, but using inhaled cannabis. And, and I should mention that you know, it, it can be difficult to disentangle effects related to inhaling a substance that leads to particulate matter in the lungs, which probably is pro-inflammatory versus the effects of the cannabis itself. But the goal here will be to do the same thing, to randomly assign people, go ahead and use your inhaled cannabis today versus avoid it, while simultaneously studying how does this affect common heart rhythms, physical activity, sleep, and glucose. So we will be enrolling. And incidentally, this will be 
remote. And so anyone interested can join pretty much around the world. And we hope to start enrollment in the next couple months. Well, I liked your comment about, yeah, tobacco is a naturally occurring substance. So yeah, really, I really appreciate that. So you've, you've also conducted a lot of research examining alcohol. I think we're going through all the substances, right? Uh, and various heart outcomes, mainly atrial fibrillation. Can you summarize that for us, please? Yeah, so this is, this is a very interesting topic, arguably the most commonly consumed drug in the, the world. And I do think it's helpful to separate people who have a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation versus those who do not. So interestingly, there remains what we would call equipoise or really an absence of evidence to demonstrate clear benefit or harm when it comes to drinking about a drink a day, especially according to the Mediterranean diet, meaning a glass of red wine with dinner. You could also argue that includes a dark beer or what would be considered a high polyphenol, low alcohol drink, generally not more than one a day with a meal versus not drinking at all. We don't actually know in the general population which of those is better. And in fact, we have a grant in submission in hopes of actually, again, providing rigorous randomized controlled trial evidence to guide us, uh, to, to help inform our patients and the public as to which is better. Now, importantly, although there is some observational data, which is prone to confounding, that that level, low level of regular alcohol consumption might have some health benefits, that does not mean that more is better. So we often think about the protective effects of alcohol, especially a glass of red wine, as related to preventing heart attacks, blockages in the coronary arteries. But we and others have shown that people who drink in excess, so people with a diagnosis of alcohol use disorders, people who engage in binge drinking, meaning four or more drinks or five or more drinks in a 24-hour period, they actually have a higher risk of heart attack, not to mention higher risks of injuries, uh, other sorts of problems, overall mortality, et cetera. So more is not better when it comes to alcohol. Now, when it comes to atrial fibrillation, it does appear that the atria are especially sensitive to alcohol and that alcohol quite specifically really does enhance the risk for atrial fibrillation, not only in the long run, but also in the very short term. So we did a study where we fit patients. I, I alluded to this earlier. This is the study where we fit patients with continuously recording alcohol sensors and a continuously recording ECG or EKG. These are people who had intermittent atrial fibrillation or what we call paroxysmal atrial fibrillation and drank alcohol sometimes. And what we found was that a drink of alcohol heightened the risk of an atrial fibrillation episode occurring within a few hours. In fact, one drink doubled the risk of a given atrial fibrillation episode occurring in four to six hours. We then did a randomized controlled, actually it was a double blind study where we took patients undergoing atrial fibrillation ablation. And the reason we did that was because these patients have electrodes all over their heart or inside their heart, which enables us to characterize the electrical properties of the atria, the top chambers of the heart, both in the right atrium and the left atrium. We randomly assign them to either 
an alcohol infusion. And we use this fancy computerized pharmacokinetic model in conjunction with serial breathalyzer tests to get the alcohol up to 0.08%. So we knew everyone had the exact same uh, degree of alcohol exposure versus a, a masked placebo. Now these patients, because they were undergoing this procedure, they were under anesthesia. So they didn't know what they were getting. The operators didn't know what they were getting. And then we did these very comprehensive electrophysiology studies before and after. And what we found was that the electrical properties of the heart changed significantly in the alcohol group and, and very specifically in the pulmonary veins of the left atria, the, the repolarization shortened, which is known to be a, an electrical phenomenon that renders the atria more prone to fibrillate. Interestingly, we know from our catheter ablation procedures that pulmonary veins, these veins that enter from the lungs into the left atrium seem to be critical to both the initiation and perpetuation of atrial fibrillation. So we still don't understand the fundamental mechanisms by which that occurs, but this was the first evidence that yes, indeed, alcohol acutely is doing something to our hearts very immediately that renders them more prone to fibrillate. And then finally, I should, should mention an important study from colleagues in Australia, Alex Voskoboynik and a senior author was Peter Kistler, where they took patients with AFib who drank heavily. They randomly assigned them to half of them, you please stop drinking, try to avoid all alcohol. The other half, they essentially didn't change their behavior. The, the group randomly assigned to abstention uh, exhibited a substantial reduction in their AFib burden. Fascinating stuff. And I'm looking at the bottle of uh, rather nice red wine that I was going to share with some, some guests, and I'm, I'm now reconsidering. <laughs> so you seem to be a master with, uh, or you, you and your team seem to be masters with, with acronyms and clever names for studies. So you've now got the health E, the letter E, heart. So I can obviously see it, but it sounds like healthy heart study that you helped set up. So what are your aims? How did the study originate? And what have you discovered thus far? Have at it. Yeah. So this was in 2013, where we thought, you know, it seems like most people have internet access. Maybe we can leverage that to enroll participants anywhere. And we recognized, having done a lot of conventional research, that it is quite heartening to realize how many people really are genuinely interested in contributing to original research. And by the way, when we ask them why, it really is an altruistic motivation. But many people can't take time off work. Many people don't live close to a major medical center. And so we wanted to provide people easy access to contribute to meaningful research, serious research, without in a, in a way that would be convenient to them. This has subsequently evolved into something that we've called Eureka, which is a digital research infrastructure where we can customize mobile apps to help facilitate mobile health-based research. Now, the Healthy Heart Study uh, itself is really meant to be a longitudinal cohort study. We've enrolled about 250,000 people around the world. We are going to ramp up Healthy Heart 2.0 very soon. It has been generally a web-based study, but we're transforming it to more of an app-based study. And so the aim is really to quite broadly 
collect data at baseline and examine various predictors or possible predictors such as behaviors, other characteristics as a way to understand risk factors, ideally modifiable risk factors that are important to developing clinically relevant heart disease, such as heart failure, heart attack, atrial fibrillation. All of these things, by the way, bleed into a lot of cerebral uh, outcomes such as stroke and dementia. So we've published many papers using the Healthy Heart Study. Just to give you an example, people can connect various Bluetooth-enabled devices, one of which would include Bluetooth-enabled scales, meaning they, they, they step on their scale, you get, you get a, their weight, and any time they step on that scale, because it's Bluetooth-enabled, because they forged this connection, we get those data. When the pandemic rolled around and the shutdown came, we thought, you know, we asked ourselves, huh, people are probably sitting around. They're not getting out to, you know, as much as they used to, to, to walk up the stairs at work. I wonder if they've gained weight. So we looked back, well, let's look at these serial weight measurements from these scales and, and compare how they've changed before and after the shutdown. And in fact, we found that yes, indeed, people had on average gained about two pounds. And in fact, there was some evidence in many cases, it was more than that. Of course, uh, there's a conf confidence interval around that. And that got a lot of attention. And in fact, we were on Colbert's uh, late night show, highlighted this. It was in the New York Times as well. And it was all just by looking back at this extraordinarily valuable data set. There are many other examples where we've shown, for example, reductions in step counts during the California wildfires because, again, of, of shutdowns. We use these data and the Healthy Heart Study participants to for the first time show that an Apple Watch could detect atrial fibrillation. That was using our own technology, our own uh, way to analyze heart rate data. This is before Apple got involved. And we hope that this will just continue to accumulate data. And I should mention, uh, by the way, there is so much data that we, uh, us, we at UCSF do not have sufficient time or bandwidth to dive into it all. And we're very happy to work with other collaborators that are interested in doing secondary data analyses, because we see this as a, as a, a major cohort that, that others can make use of as well. It, it's fascinating work. And I love this sort of stuff about using newly available information to make, you know, cogent observations. Good on you. That's, yeah, I know, listen, during lockdown, I know that I had some issues and I had to do a lot more exercise just to not put on weight because, yeah, we weren't moving around as much. So I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. And I'd like to thank you for being with us, Dr. Gregory Marcus. And I look forward to diving into more of your work next week. So folks, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode, like us on social media, and check out the archives and join us next week for another fascinating episode with Greg discussing the economics of cardiac devices and AI in healthcare. Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sackyer, and I thank you for listening to the EMJ podcast. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.